All right, our scripture reading will be taken from Revelation chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read verses 8 through 10. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands up upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Verse 10, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Our message this Sabbath is 1844 and the Great Disappointment. 1844 and the Great Disappointment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, of all the messages in this series, this is one of the most challenging. And so Lord, I ask today for an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit not only to bathe my mind and to lead me as I speak, but Lord, everyone who will hear this message, for you say in your word, you give the promise that the Holy Ghost will lead us into all truth. So as we study this uh, topic today and these verses, I am asking, Lord, for um, just a special anointing. I ask, Lord, once again, that you just make me a nail on the wall. A rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. For, Lord, we know, as was just sung, that we shall see the King very soon. We want to be ready, Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so this is one of the more challenging messages. So if, if you would be so kind, pray for me as we go through this. Um, this is uh, a lot of heavy material, but we're going we're gonna to get through it with God's uh, power and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Daniel chapter 12 is where we're going to start. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never once since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Next week we're going to talk about the pre-advent judgment. And let me just kind of set some context. As we are going through apologetics and defending what we believe, um, one of the most challenging things as Adventists, one of the places where, as you'll see, we are most ridiculed and attacked are on two principles. One of them is on 1844 and what does it mean? Obviously, we are still laughed at, um, although there was no Adventist church when 1844 happened. We came out of that, uh, but people mock us because of this great disappointment. Um, and also, there are many who challenge the idea that there is a pre-Advent judgment or a judgment that happens before the second coming. So over the next two weeks, these are the themes that we will be hitting. And these are heavy themes. Um, that not everyone is even likes us to talk about, honestly. But we're going to go through it and try and get an understanding because, again, uh, we are coming into a difficult time. As you see here, Daniel says it. There's going to be a time of trouble 
um, such as never was since there was a nation. And you're not going to be able to stand in that time of trouble if you don't know what you believe. So verse 2, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And you can see here, this talks about, this, this already hits you with the idea of judgment. It speaks about the books that we're going to talk about next week. Um, it speaks about, um, it really even introduces the idea of two resurrections. Uh, Daniel 12 is, is very powerful. Verse 3, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So verse 3 gives us this, and you remember the parable of the, of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were what? Foolish. And you can see, even as Jesus gives that, um, that, that parable hundreds of years later, you can see here that um, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. There is a wisdom that we must uh, acquire as Christians, right? And it says that, and if we can take this wisdom, we will turn many to righteousness and we'll be like the stars forever and ever. Verse four, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased then i daniel looked and behold uh, uh, there stood other uh, other two the one on once on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river and one said to the man clothed in linen which was upon the waters of the river how long shall it be to the end of these wonders in other words when will all of this happen when will the end be verse 7 and I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, which when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half a time. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So we're going to look at what this time, times, and a half a time is today. Once you understand that, you understand when the time of the end began. And from there, there's a lot of prophecy that goes with it. So bit to peel away and look at. Verse 8, and I heard, but I understood not. Daniel, you couldn't understand what was going on. He says, I said, I, oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. The prophecies that Daniel gives, many of them would not be fully understood until the time of the end. Now, spoiler alert, I can tell you that the time of the end wasn't that long ago and that the 1844 happens after that time. Something had to happen in 1844 so that these books would be unsealed and these prophecies fully understood. And it took a great trying of the people of God to get to that place. So he says in verse 10, and look what he describes. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Now, so there is going to be something that happens that purifies God's people so that they will be able to understand the prophecies of Daniel most fully. Something happens, something 
clearly traumatic, something difficult. We've already heard that there was going to be a great time of trouble. And so as we are going into this time, something traumatic will happen that will cause God's people to be purified and at the same time strengthened. Verse 11, from, that, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be Two thousand. Uh, there shall be a thousand. Sorry, two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he that waits and comes to the thousand three hundred and fifty, a uh, thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. But go you thy way, till the end be. He speaking to Daniel. He says, "For you shall rest. You'll stand with your lot, the end of days." Daniel is told, "Listen, you are prophesying things that you won't understand, but you're going to rest, Daniel." And you're going to stand in your lot at the end of days. Powerful thing. So what are some of the lessons we get or the themes we get from Daniel chapter 12? One, there's going to be a severe time of trouble, right? And, and it, the irony is that there are many who teach that the church is going to be able to avoid this time of trouble, that they would be, there will be, will, there'll be a secret rapture and you'll be able to escape it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It talks about the time, times, and the dividing of time. Uh, the time of the end gives some new time prophecies for the book. It focuses on the wise or those who understand. And what I like is that when we reference back to Jesus and the, uh, his parable of the 10 virgins, it is very profound because it tells you that what the 10 wise virgins had that the foolish virgins did not have was what? Oil. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So you get it? So in order to understand these things, you must have the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons the Holy Spirit is under attack in many circles. And it is a sealed prophecy. So I want to, again, make sure we, we, we lay down some things. Um, one of the things that I was reading about this week is that in the, in, um, one of the well, I think it's the fourth cave where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have found some very um, 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 well-kept, I think they were carved in leather, um, portions of the book of Daniel. And when they found these, these predate, this is critical, they predate Christ by at least over 100, the birth of Christ by at least over 150 years. So if there are prophecies, that so this confirms the book of Daniel, if there are prophecies in the book of Daniel that outline the birth of Christ, or at least the life of Christ, it tells you that he had to be a prophet. So some will argue, well, we don't have old enough manuscripts to make some of these statements. But what we know is that the book existed before Jesus was born in the form that we have it. So when we go through the book, as we go through what we're going to go through, understand that Daniel's prophecies existed before Christ was born. So if there are prophecies in the book that outline Christ and his life, it tells you that you can trust the book of Daniel and even broader, you can trust the scripture. And if you can trust the scripture, you can trust the prophecies that we're going to go over today. All right? So, the first question we're going to answer, why are prophecies sealed or hidden? What is the purpose sometimes of a prophecy being sealed or hidden? The second one, when does the time of the end begin? We talked about that a second ago. When does this time happen? And what actually happened in 1844? Right? You all know that they, 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 from the Millerite movement, we'll show you a little bit about Miller in a minute, um, a simple farmer who preached that the, Jesus was going to come soon. Ironically, if you really study carefully, Miller was not the one wanting to set dates. There were others around him who kind of pressured him to and the dates were set and the first date came and went and the second date came and went. Um, 
But they were thinking that the sanctuary being cleansed, as we're going to see, meant that the earth was going to be cleansed with fire. And that was where they were wrong. And when you study this carefully, remember, God gave Daniel prophecies that he didn't give him the fulfillment to. I have to believe that as I look at this, that there were God almost shielded the eyes of those studying some of these prophecies until the time was right to reveal it to them. And so what actually happened in 1844 is a very important thing. So let's go back to Daniel, one of the more common parts of the book. One of my favorite parts of the book of Daniel is Daniel chapter 2. When I was a little kid, I used to like to think of, all, and they'd have the picture in Sabbath school class of all the different kingdoms. I just thought it was so cool and so neat and kind of wish I had one of those to carry around with me. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, in, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. So he was so troubled in his dreaming that he couldn't sleep. He woke up. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and astrologers, sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And remember, this is a time when the king's wise men and magicians actually could do magic. You remember the story of Moses when he went in there and threw down his rod in front of Pharaoh? What did Pharaoh's men do? They didn't do what I would have done, which is run. I would have took off. Somebody walked in here right now, threw down a rod and a snake. I'd, I'd be out that door. They didn't even budge. They just pulled out their rod and threw it down. Because in the ancient world, this was far more common than we realize. Right? And so he brings them in thinking that they should be able to solve his dream. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. My spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. That's easy, right? He tells you the dream. You can make any interpretation you want. I'm reading a book on sleep. I'll have to present some of the stuff I'm learning about sleep. It's very profound. But one of the things that the, the guy writing the book says he does to university students is he has one of them tell him a dream and he gives the same. Um, he says, oh, your dream means that you are, you are overwhelmed and you don't have enough time and that things are going tough for you. And every year he does this to every class and every time all the students go, wow. As the student giving the dream says, yeah, that was it. If you get, if, if, if the reason God wouldn't allow Nebuchadnezzar to remember his dream is so that he could give it to Daniel. Powerful stuff. Daniel answered. And so we jump forward. I, I, I don't have time to go through the whole story, but you know what happens. They can't do it. So the king is about to kill everybody. Every magician, all the wise men, everybody's got to die. Daniel hears about it. Says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, listen, we don't, we, you know, bad stuff is happening. We're about to be put to death for something we didn't even do. And they get together and they pray. Daniel sleeps and is given the dream and the interpretation, and he thanks God for it. It's a beautiful, just how Daniel deals with God is powerful. But then in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king, and this is answering the question, why does God sometimes uh, seal some things? In the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers show the king? Here's what he says. So Daniel says, they can't show it to you. Look at his answer. He says, but there is a God in heaven that reveals what? Reveals secrets. And makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and, thy vi and the visions of thy head uh, upon the bed are these and then he gives 
everything. And we know what it, he goes through the different kingdoms and when they would come and the different medals that are then expounded upon in chapter 7. So if we had time, I'd show you that every time uh, Daniel adds to it and he adds detail to it. So that by the end of the book, you get a full understanding of what's actually going on. So why was the dream and the prophecy hidden? There are three things that I would point out. Number one, to glorify God as the what? The source of truth. Nobody could, when Nebuchadnezzar heard his dream after he forgot it, there was no way you could make the argument that by chance Daniel figured out the dream. It showed that truth comes only from God. The second thing, the point, to point out the counterfeit wise men. God will reveal truth to us so that when others go against that truth, we know who is uh, legitimate and who is not. The third, it was to identify who God's true followers were and to purify those people. It will be the same in the end times, right? And so when he talks about having a remnant, it is this, this is how the remnant is defined. Revelation 12 and verse 17, and the dragon was wrought with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the, 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 the remnant keep God's commandments. We talked about the Sabbath last time and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, it, Revelation further breaks this down in Revelation 19, 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. The angel said, don't worship me. I'm your fellow servant, your brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. He, and then he defines, he says, worship God. Why? For the testimony of Jesus is the what? It is the spirit of prophecy. The remnant church will be marked because it will keep the commandments of God and it will have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. I want to reiterate that we are often mocked because of our focus on prophecy. But I want to submit to you that according to the scripture, if you are an end time church and you do not focus on prophecy, it is because you, are, you have fallen away from what God prescribes for the church of the end time. So we study the prophecies. Let's look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 33. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet shall they fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. It's talking about the time of persecution that we're about to talk about. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with little help and many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 35, and some of them of understanding shall fall, shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. When we begin to deal with these end time prophecies, one of the recurring themes, we've already read it once, is that there is going to be a time of trial and difficulty. There are multiple times of trial. One of them we're going to talk about now lasts for 1,260 years. But the time of trial purifies the church. In fact, if I had time, I could, I would, I would, we would get into the martyrdoms that happened in the early church. And one of the reasons Christianity exploded all across the Roman Empire is, as they said, the blood of the martyrs was like the seed of the church. As the martyrs died, as, the, as people watched them in coliseums be ripped to shreds by wild animals or by gladiators or burned at the stake, and people watched them, and even as that happened, they sang hymns and praises to God. And if you were watching, if you came to see the show, sitting in the audience um, like it was some kind of crazy wrestling match or something, 
and you're watching this thing happening and you hear them singing and praising God, even as it seems they have lost all and are defeated, yet they praise God, you would leave that Colosseum that day and wonder what kind of God do they serve? So the church is going to go through some tough times. So here are some of the beasts. We jumped to Daniel 7. We talked about, we, we were going to, you know, we would have talked about this in Daniel 2. Um, but I want to focus really on the last beast. This artist really draws this beast to look terrible, um, frightening actually. But you can see the other three that we know about, um, the Babylon, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And then this is the Roman Empire when, she, when it rises up. Daniel 7, from the Amplified Version 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, this one, which was different from all the others, exceedingly terrible and shocking whose teeth were of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke, and crushed, and trampled what was left with its feet. The Roman Empire was the most powerful of all of these ancient empires. Its territory was largest. Its, its complete control was the most decisive. And these beasts are mentioned because each of them are affiliated or held captive the people of God. Amen? You get it? So why aren't the Mayans, the Incas, why isn't the, the Mali and Songhai in Africa, why aren't these all those other empires mentioned? Because the people of God were absorbed by these kingdoms. And so it is the story of God's people in prophecy and history that you're being, is being revealed. And so this is why these empires are mentioned. And obviously, the, because they hold God's people captive and, and fight against God's people uh, to some extent uh, or, or to a great extent, these are the ones that are mentioned, and these are the ones that become very prophetically relevant. Um, Daniel 7, again, verse 20, and about, and about the ten horns, which represented kings that were on his head, and the other horn which came up later, and became which three of the horns fell, the horn which had eyes, you can see they put eyes on the horn here, um, and a mouth that spoke great things, and which looked greater than the others. And so a little horn comes up, uh, separate and different from the other ones. Verse 21, as, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. And so there's a power that comes up that, come, that fights against the people of God and prevails. And it's a picture of the persecution that the saints went through. We'll come back to that here in a second. Daniel 7, 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, describing the same power and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time of times and the dividing of times. And there's that time period again. But that, that time period is, is shown many times in the Bible. Revelation 12, 6 talks about it. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there two thousand, a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. Revelation 13, 5, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And so all of these things uh, uh, reach to our 1,260 year prophecy. To show you how exact the Bible is, we know, we know when this time period started, and we know when it ends. Starts in 538 AD. The Ostrogoths, and they were called barbarians, I'm not sure that they'd get away with that today, calling people names like that. But um, they were called barbarians, but the Ostrogoths abandoned their siege of Rome in 530 AD. And this left the bishop of Rome to exercise the prerogatives of Justinian's decree of 533 AD. So five years later, when this siege ends, the power and authority of the papacy grew. 
That's how it began. So what did Justinian's decree say? This is a, a mosaic of Justinian and his code of 533, which is a, one of the premier legal documents in all of history. Um, it's much larger than what we're going to talk about here. The code of our Lord, the most sacred emperor Justinian, concerning the most exalted trinity and the Catholic faith and providing that no one shall dare to publicly oppose them. And the code says this in the law. This is where it gives the papacy its almost absolute power. We order all those who follow this law to assume the name of Catholic Christians. And considering others as demented and insane, we order that they shall bear the infamy of heresy, and when the divine vengeance with which they merit has been appeased, they shall afterwards be punished in accordance with our resentment, which we have acquired from the judgment of heaven. And so, this is how this time of power starts off, in 538 A.D. So, John, Bishop of the city of Rome, to his most illustrious and merciful son Justinian, and of course you know this is the transition from the pagan Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire. Among the conspicuous reasons for praising your wisdom and gentleness, most Christian of emperors, you have preserved reverence for the see of Rome and have subjected all things to its authority and have given it unity. The Catholic means universal, and this was an effort to unite the kingdom underneath one banner of religion because there were those who didn't agree. And so Vigilius ascended the papal chair in 538 AD under the military protection of Belisarius. And this is from the history of the Christian church. And this is how it all began. It was 1260 years of persecution. These are all the times that it's mentioned in the scripture, Daniel 7, 12, Revelation 12, Revelation 11, Revelation 13, it's said as 42 months. Um, and I'll, I'll get a little bit into how we calculate it, but you can see all of the different times where it's mentioned. And this is what it looks like, right? It starts in 530 AD. If it's 1260 years, there's no year zero. It would end in AD 1798, right? But how do we get it? One is we use a day year principle. So the months total the following in days. There are 30 days in a prophetic month defined in the Bible. So 30 days or times 42 months, you get 1260 days, or in prophecy, 1260 prophetic years. Um, and here you see it, you shall all wander in the wilderness 40 years after the number of days in which you search the land, 40 days each day for what? For a year, so you get the day year principle. Here's what, poor Ezekiel, he got some tough stuff happened to him. But it says, you lie upon your side 390 days for I've laid upon you the years of Israel's iniquity. Complete, completing these lie upon your side 40 days to bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I've laid upon you a day for what? For each year. So you get the idea of how we get the day in the year. Daniel 4.32, and they shall drive thee from men. And, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass. This is speaking to, remember Nebuchadnezzar kind of goes crazy and they send him, he's sent out for seven years and he eats grass. This is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story, a very interesting one. And seven times shall pass over thee, until thou knowest that the, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of heaven, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. So a time is a year. And once you get all of that, you can actually do all the math in every single situation, and every time you come up with 1,260 years. The Bible is exact in the way that this works. So the papacy's decreed power began in March of 538. Its decreed death took place on February 15, 1798, exactly 1,260 years later, just as the Bible prophesies multiple times. 
And this was the symbol, and it was often called the Dark Ages. In Revelation 12, 6, the woman is sent into the wilderness. In Matthew 24, 11, it's the Great Tribulation. It was a difficult time. You studied in science class how Galileo and others, as they made different findings about space and science, were, were brought into trouble because they had made these discoveries. Um, and so it was a time that really held, especially Europe, back uh, um, from you know, advancements. But it ended. In, one, in 1798, that 1260 years ended, the French general Berthier proclaimed the political rule of the papacy at an end. And that's it, it ended. It took the Pope, he took the Pope prisoner to France where he died in exile. And that time period was done. And after 1798, those prophecies that had been sealed, the time of the end has now been reached, all those prophecies would, could be understood. So whatever happens in that way happens then. The deadly wound was the end of the union of church and state, which is one of the things I didn't get into, but that's one of the things that happened. There was a, a mingling of the church and state. Um, the Vatican basically controlled all of Europe and by default much of the world as Europe became to get colonies. Um, the deadly wound was the end of the union of church and state and the establishment of republics as a principal way the world would be governed. And so we saw, we have seen that prophecy fulfilled. And so it says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book to the time of the end, right? And so when we get to the time of the end, we begin to see these things. Um, and Daniel asks, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? He wants to know, when is this really going to happen? And, and we read these verses already. I'm going to jump forward to Daniel chapter 8. He says, then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto the certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, when the Millerites read this verse, they understood the connection it had to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, they said, okay, the end of the world will happen after this 2,300 days. Now, we now know that that was 2,300 years, and you can follow the thing all the way out and come to an exact date. The date you come to, first they came to 1843, eventually they came to 1844, and that's how you get 1844, based on everything that we, we've done. But they said, they believed that the sanctuary was the earth. And so they were thinking that the world was gonna come to an end. So what did they do? They started selling off their stuff, they gave away their stuff. In fact, the numbers got so high that some say, that there were over 100,000 people like this who had basically, you know, given up their stuff and were sitting on the roofs of their houses or sitting on the tops of mountains and hills just waiting for Jesus to come on that day. Can you imagine when he didn't show? It was a great disappointment. I, I should have put some of the quotes in here. They were weeping bitterly. They were crying. And what I think is most powerful is, I mean, when you read some of the pioneers and what they say about it, I mean, it was obviously heartbreaking because they had been preaching this thing for years and then there was a groundswell of people who had supported them. Even many who didn't sell off their stuff were thinking that this was going to happen. When it didn't happen, one of the most difficult things to read about the great disappointment is they were breaking into churches, burning them down, beating people up after it didn't happen. Violent mobs, I mean, it was a horrible occurrence. And of the hundreds of thousands that would have believed, 100,000, they say like most literally were the most 
uh, adamant about it. The number of those who stayed um, to become our denomination dropped to less than probably 50 people. So let's go back to what we learned. That means when we talk about that it would be sweet in your mouth, but bitter in your stomach, as we read, when they heard the prophecies after 1798 and they could understand the prophecies, it was sweet. They, they said no one sang like those Adventists. They would sing, waiting for Jesus to come, knowing that they are thinking that they had the right date. They would sing. They were joyous. It was so sweet. But when the disappointment came, it was most bitter for them. And it was because you don't digest truth. You don't digest, let me, let me start with the, 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 the biological first. You don't digest food in your mouth. You digest it in your stomach. Right? So it was sweet in the mouth, but they couldn't digest it there. It wasn't until they'd swallowed it and the truth of what happened sunk in that the thing became bitter to them. Now, Daniel says, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uliah, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So I came near where I stood, and, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O man, for the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep and my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. And, sa and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at, that, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding, dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. He says, and through his policy, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. The vision of the evening and the morning which he was told is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Daniel finally gets the meaning of the vision. Gabriel comes back in verse 21. He says, and he informed me and talked to me. He said, oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. He says, at the beginning of your supplication, the commandments came forth, and I came to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. He says, 70 weeks are determined. This is one of the most important prophecies in Scripture. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks, which would be 490 years. That's what you're given. Daniel must have been like, but wait a minute, we want to go back to Jerusalem now. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth, and this is how you begin to anchor this thing in time, from the, the, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. So he says, listen, um, you, you know, this speaks to the, what will happen with Nehemiah and, and Ezra, but he says it's going to be a long time. Now, this is the prophecy 
When the wise men were looking for Jesus, I believe this is the prophecy they must have understood. They knew that at a certain time the Messiah would come and that he would be anointed, right? And then it says, and after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. This describes Matthew 24. I mean, this is powerful. It speaks to the crucifixion. The Messiah would be cut off in the middle of that last week. It speaks to the fact that the prince, the emperor of Rome, should come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end would be a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. What does Jesus say in Luke? That the desolations come when foreign armies surround the temple and the city. And so here Daniel prophesies it all. And Jesus, and one of the ways you know Daniel's an important book, it's one of the Old Testament books that Jesus actually references by name. And he shall confirm the covenant for many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. When Jesus leaves the sanctuary, the temple, in Matthew chapter 23, at the end of the chapter, what does he say to them? I leave your house unto you desolate. Daniel prophecies nails it. In the middle of the week, he would cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. What happened in the middle of that prophetic week? Jesus was crucified. And what happened to the veil in the temple? It was ripped from the top to the bottom. Literally, these prophecies come exactly true. And um, I wish I had the time because I could sh I, to really show you. This thing is so anchored in time. There is no way. And remember what I said earlier. The book of Daniel has been established to exist before Jesus was born. So some would argue that maybe it was, you know, it's not old enough, but it's definitely older than Jesus. Yet the book prophesies precisely what would happen. This is on the road. Can you imagine Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples that were so disappointed? You think the only great disappointment was in 1844? The Bible is full of disappointments. Can you imagine the disciples that are hiding under the table, scared after the crucifixion? They were disappointed. Jonah's mad sitting on the tree because his prophecy didn't come true. He was disappointed. Well, he was wrong for his disappointment, but he was disappointed. I could go all through the Bible on the road to Emmaus. They said, we thought maybe this was the one. They were disappointed. Jesus was able to show them from verses like Daniel 9 and 27, you missed everything in your arrogance, in your desire for greatness on earth, right? Because they all wanted to be the vice president in the kingdom. The disciples were too busy jockeying for position to get the spiritual lessons. And let me warn you, church, in these last days, if we are more worried about position and power and fame, more worried about how many followers we have on TikTok and Instagram and all of this craziness that's out there now, we're more worried about all of this stuff than we are about studying God's word. Like the disciples, we will miss what's actually going on. Let me tell you something. Netflix has nothing on the word of God. Challenge you to get passionate about God's word. We binge watch Netflix. We ought to be binge studying the word of God. And they just teach you filling your head up with pure, unadulterated foolishness. Anti-biblical, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Christian. 
We, we let this stuff bathe over our minds at a time when our minds need to be sharp to see what is going on in the world. In fact, so dangerous is this text that there's literally a rabbinic curse for Jews not to study Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I have it here in English and Spanish. I'll just read the English. May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And may his memory rot from off the face of the earth forever. You can look this up for yourself. Why so do you not want this passage studied if you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? Because they know if you study this thing with an open heart and mind, led by the Holy Ghost, you are going to come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. I'll show you. Let's, let's do some pictorial. So, the decree to rebuild the temple is here, to rebuild Jerusalem, 457 B.C. Cyrus gives the decree, um, and some argue, but we know when we read the book of Ezra that it was January probably, when Ezra would have embarked and by uh, he would have gotten to Jerusalem in May, either way, it would have been 457. Where you anchor in time the start of this 490 years, the 70 weeks, and you anchor that in time, you land exactly here in 8034 as the end of the 490 years. I want you to see this, church. You do not believe some cleverly made fable. Because in the middle of the last of these 70 weeks, here's the 69th week, would end literally to the day when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He was anointed. That's when he became Messiah. That's when his ministry on earth began. What happens after he was baptized? The spirit leads him into the wilderness and he is tempted by who? That's the beginning of his ministry. Just as it is prophesied. That's why the wise men knew, listen, if he's going to be anointed, he's got to be getting born somewhere in here. So they knew to start looking. Look at this. He's cut off in the middle of the week, exactly on time as the prophecy tells. AD 31, Jesus crucified in the middle, dead middle of this week. And what, what is the significance of the end of this period? Daniel, Daniel tells you after this, this is the time that the Jews have. This is the time that God's people have to get their act together. After this time, the gospel, the truth, would go to all the world. And after this time, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? The Apostle Paul specifically raised up. Peter gets a vision. Remember Cornelius? Peter gets the vision of the unclean animals let down in a sheep. And the purpose of the vision isn't that you eat unclean animals. The purpose of the vision is that it is now safe to go and witness to the Gentiles who were beforehand considered unclean. Just as the, I hope you get the power of this. You, when you open your Bible and read it, you're not reading some, some cartoon comic book Marvel DC foolishness. This thing is real. In fact, when you go to the 2300 years, it actually is cut off. And there's a whole thing I would do around the word vision and how you know these two are connected. But if you start in 457 uh, BC, it lands you here in AD 1844. This is how they came to 1844. It is anchored by this here. And I didn't, I didn't, didn't show you this, but I can show you this. It is anchored in this decree. It ends here. And this is why they were spot on. Something happened in 1844. Now, they thought that what was going to happen was that the world was going to be destroyed and cleansed, that this was the sanctuary. 
but they were wrong. Now, of course, we get beat up over this, and men like Bill Maher, um, when he was attacking Ben Carson, and I, I say Ben Carson's been probably one of the most attacked for his religion politicians of all times. Um, ironically, many people have learned the truth because of how they attack him, because I've heard some of them actually attack Ben Carson and explain what we believe quite well. Stuff we, uh, uh, the church is afraid to stand up and say, our enemies are saying for us. But Bill Maher and the great men, they love to mock us about the great disappointment. Because what happens after great disappointment is there are six groups of Adventists that come out of it. The first one is an evangelical Adventist who never accept the Sabbath or the, or the, or the, or the uh, significance of the commandments. And they basically are the largest of all. They were against slavery. In fact, because they believed that Jesus was coming soon, they said, we don't have time for racism or prejudice. We've got to reach everyone with this truth. If you don't believe me, read the book, The Southern Work by Ellen White. It will blow your mind. Things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says decades later, Ellen White says, then. 1844 on the judgment, right? It comes, so it comes, we're going to talk more about the judgment next week. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll skip this one until then. So unsealing the book, Daniel 12, 4. But thou, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the end time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Revelation 10, 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. He said unto me, Take it and eat up, it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And Dan, uh, Re John the Revelator says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. In my mouth it was sweet, but in my belly it was bitter. And he said unto the, me, thou must prophesy again unto many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Daniel represents us. He represents what happened to those people who, just as we talked about how it was purified, we went from over 100,000 people and many sympathizers down to just literally a handful of people that could fit in this room. The church was purified. And what did they do? I, um, we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the, the heroes of it in a second. But they began to study the Bible. They didn't give up on God. Others gave up on God completely. God allowed them to go through this great disappointment so that they would be purified. You can't start the remnant church with groupies. And a lot of them were just rolling in the hype. The Apostle John's sensory perception and actions prophesy those of the church as they experience key end-time elements and events, also describing the role of the end-time church in the spreading of the gospel and the prophetic truth. Because what he says is, you must prophesy again unto many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And church, that's what we do. We have hospitals all over the world. In Caracas, in Pakistan, our hospital is still deemed as like the top hospital there. Our universities all over the world, people come to our universities and our schools to be educated. We are the second, we are, we are the second largest parochial school system in the world and the second largest hospital system in the world, a religious hospital or parochial system in the world. Oh, and, and we are only a few, you know, comparatively of, of, you know, less than 20 million, 25 million people. Number one is the Catholic Church with over a billion members. Yet we are there because this prophecy has been fulfilled in us. The desire we have to share this gospel, even now as the world turns against us, 
They're passing more and more laws against conversion. I showed you in one of the earlier ones where the Pope himself went in front of a high school in Italy and said, um, Christians should not proselytize. But we are called. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew 24, this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness. And then what happens? Men shall the end come. When you evangelize and share this gospel with other people, you participate with God in bringing an end to the wickedness of this world. That's what our denomination has been strong in doing. 1844 in the remnant, purified the church, created a true remnant of just 50 to 100 people. They started the Bible studies. Higher medicine was, moved, was gone his way back to New York uh, and had the vision of the sanctuary. And that's what uh, was able to make them make the links, as we're going to talk about here in a second, to understand what actually happened. So what else happened in 1844? Well, we know that the Baha'i faith started. And while we have the three angels' messages that say, come out of her, my people, one guy said, no, I'm the guy who, I'm the one who they were waiting for in 1844. Did you know that? This guy says he's the one they were waiting for. And then he says, then he says, no, come out. We should all join and be one big thing. Ecumenicalism is born to combat the loud cry and the three angels' messages. And they still, to this day, have, if they don't have the most representation at the United Nations, they're still very highly overrepresented at the United Nations. What else happened in 1844? Well, uh, uh, this is where um, Charles Darwin um, does a, much of his work on the Origin of Species book. Evolution really explodes at this time. You don't think the devil knew what was going on? You know what the Bible says? The demons believe and tremble. Satan knew that in 1844, his time was running out, and he began to ratchet that thing up. He came out with this you know, new way of ecumenicalism. Then he came out with evolution. Evolution has done more damage to Christianity and to the world than almost anything. It is a religion. It takes a lot of faith to believe that we are all the products of a cosmic accident. Some primordial sludge got hit by lightning just the right way and amino acids formed proteins, formed cells and then became alive and then got legs and walked Come on now. What else happened in 1844? Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx, Frederick Engels. It was about the time when they put out the Communist Manifesto. The world fundamentally began to change. The world, you know, so many people don't want to recognize what happened then. But let me tell you something. The devil knew exactly what was going on. And he shifted into high gear. So what really happened? Hebrews 9 tells you three. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, this is Hebrews chapter 9, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. But, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Paul writing in Hebrew says, Christ did this, not in anything made of hands, nothing on earth, in the heavenly sanctuary, Christ was moving. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He moved in 1844, we'll talk more about this next week, from the holy place in the heavenly sanctuary into the most holy place. And what has happened when that happened? 
judgment began. Now, again, we are ridiculed for believing in a pre-advent judgment or any of the judgment that we believe in, but it is biblically sound. In fact, to this day, Jews still keep Yom Kippur. You've heard of the holiday. Yom Kippur is the yearly cleansing of the sanctuary and judgment where the sins of Israel are dealt with. Paul says Jesus doesn't have to in heaven do this every year. He did it once. 1844, he goes into the most holy place. And let me say this to you. As Adventists, we are unique in our belief in a, in a sanctuary message, unique in our beliefs in a pre-Advent judgment. We're unique in our beliefs around um, Jesus' ministration in heaven um, and, and all of these prophecies. We're unique. And this is why it's so attacked. It's attacked from without our church. It's attacked from within our church. Hebrews 9, 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Why did Jesus do what he did? And without the shedding of blood, there's what? No remission of sin. It was therefore necessary for, the, for that, that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. What was supposed to happen to the sanctuary in Daniel? The sanctuary was to be cleansed. Here's where it gives you the kicker. It was purified, but it wasn't earth that was purified. When Hiram Medicine figured this out, they started to study the sanctuary. They said, this is what happened. Some people say, oh, that's a cop-out. You came up with this afterwards. But when you study the Bible, sometimes the truth, just like it was for Nebuchadnezzar, it is shielded so that only the right people get it. The great disappointment wasn't really a disappointment. It was a great revelation. It was allowing the church to stand, start on strong footing. Had all everybody gotten this truth, they would have been lackadaisical with it. Those who came out of it were more on fire for God than they were before. Now let's say something, you should be on fire. You know what Jeremiah says? Jeremiah says that when he got this thing, he said it felt like fire shut up in his bones. It was therefore necessary. The patterns of things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. No, nor yet that he should offer himself often uh, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Speaking of the, of the Yom Kippur, verse 26, he says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the what? In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of what? Himself. Once you get this, you understand what Christ did for you. As powerful as the story of the cross is, when you really understand that Jesus is still working on your behalf. Verse 27, it is appointed to, to men to once to die, but after this, the what? The judgment. So some people say there's no judgment. Here the Bible says there is. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that looked for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. If you're looking for him, he is going to appear again. When you get the sanctuary message and you line it up with 1844 and you understand what happens, it's not you don't, you don't uh, become lackadaisical. You don't become Laodicean. You get on fire. Why? Because Paul is telling us here that he shall appear the second time. It is the confirmation of Christ's soon coming. Last verse is this one. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12. 
for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. What is Jesus doing? He is dealing with our sin. That's why many times in the Bible say, blot out my transgressions. David says it in Psalm 51. He says to blot out my transgressions. The judgment is going to happen. Jesus is working on our behalf. And let me tell you something. I don't care how far from God you've gone in your life. I don't care how dark your sin, how deep the stain. If you are on God's side, my Bible teaches me that it, Jesus, our high priest, is going to deal with our sin. And he's not just going to sprinkle blood on something and, 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 and cover up our sin. What Jesus is going to do, he's going to blot it out. And my Bible tells me that he will not remember your sin. Oh, someone ought to be liberated by that. I don't care how far away from God you went. I don't care how much drugs you did, how much foolishness you committed in your past. I don't care how, how far away you went or how dark your life used to be. I am telling you that the, the, the power of the message we have as Adventists is that our sin is going to be dealt with. We have got to put our full trust in that high priest. We've got to study these truths. We've got to know them for ourselves. You can't just be a passive Adventist. You've got to be on fire like our early pioneers were, going and preaching even when their lives were put in danger. Ellen White sent her son from the north, from Michigan, down into the deep south to start Oakwood uh, Junior College, or uh, it was, or technical school, whatever they called it initially. He could have been destroyed as a white northerner after the Civil War, coming into the uh, South to educate African-American former slaves, yet that was the mission that they had. We are supposed to step into the uncomfortable place because we know what is about to happen in this world. This work must be finished. And this gospel, this is why Adventists, this is why we proclaim the way we proclaim. Because we are convinced of what God is doing. We know where we are in the stream of prophecy. And we know that Jesus is about to return soon. And we want our neighbors to be ready. We want our family members to be ready. We want our, our own uh, internal nuclear family to be ready. So we carry this gospel and we preach it. Because at the end of the day, as difficult as all of this is to, to preach, it ends with a simple and wonderful and lovely truth. Jesus died so that you can live. He will wash your sin away. And what is powerful about God, who knows everything, there's one thing he says he will unknow, and that is where you have fallen and failed. He says, I'll forget it. So if he can forget it, let me give you some advice. It's time for some of you to start forgetting it. It's time for some of us to stop, stop lingering in our past. He said he'll take your sin and cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. There's no reason for you to go get a deep sea diving boat and put on scuba gear and go trying to fish up the foolishness of your past. You have been forgiven, church. And you can stand in confidence from God. That's the power of our message. That's why I'm a Christian and an Adventist. I challenge you to study these things. Because Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the power of prophecy and the clarity uh, that the Holy Spirit gives as we study scripture. Lord, help us to be on fire for your truth, to study your word. And then, Lord, give us the ability to share it in love. 
And Lord, I pray for our church here, the Three Angels Church, named uh, after the proclamations that we must give. Father God, we would be a bright light in this corner of your vineyard. Pull away disunity among the brethren. Lord, remove from us the secret sins and allow us to be soldiers in the army of the living God who are without fear and without shame. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.